listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Type 2 Diabetes, Don't Sugarcoat It, delivering bite-sized pieces of information to your ears. My name is John Anderson, and I practice internal medicine diabetes at the Frist Clinic in Nashville, Tennessee. It's part of a large multi-specialty clinic, and while I have expertise in diabetes, I'm still a primary care physician. This program is intended for clinicians. The information presented in this podcast is aligned with the views and opinions of the speakers and is sponsored by Novo Nordisk. This podcast is not to be used as medical advice. I'm pleased to be joined today by Drs. Susan Cornell and Doran Schneider to discuss today's topic, Act Early to Lighten the Heavy Burden of T2D. Dr. Schneider and Dr. Cornell, would you like to introduce yourselves? I'm Dr. Doran Schneider. I'm an internal medicine physician, and I see patients three to four times a week in a primary care setting. My full-time job is as vice president for population health services at Tandime Health, which is right outside of Philadelphia. There, I work with independent physicians and larger group practices, primary care offices in the Philadelphia area to help them improve quality, patient experience, and cost of care to allow for practices to be able to thrive and survive in a value-based landscape. My day-to-day role in my administrative hat allows me to look at data, have access to analytics, claims, and EMR information, which allows for the triangulation of an understanding of the population so that appropriate interventions can be designed to help improve quality and lower costs. So thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Susan Cornell. I'm a clinical pharmacist and a certified diabetes care and education specialist. I'm also the Associate Director of Experiential Education and a professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Midwestern University College of Pharmacy in Downers Grove, Illinois. My clinical practice is at Bolingbrook Christian Health, where I work with an interprofessional team to actually provide diabetes care to underserved patients. Well, Duran and Susan, thank you for being here. We will discuss the burden of diabetes for the U.S. healthcare system and for patients. There's a cost to the system. There's a cost economically, emotionally, and physically to patients. And we need to look at the comorbid factors that contribute to the type 2 diabetes epidemic. There really is a call to action. What is our responsibility to our patients individually and secondarily to the system as a whole? I'd like to start off by looking back to 1990 when the movies Home Alone and Ghost came out and Ice Ice Baby was the number one rap single. That was a long time ago. How have the prevalence of diabetes and the ranking of diabetes as a leading cause of death changed since then, both nationally and in your clinical practice? Wow, 1990. Well, back then, type 2 diabetes was ranked as the 18th leading cause of death globally. Uh, But then, you know, life evolved, and in 2017, it was ranked as the ninth leading cause of mortality. Uh, In 2017, diabetes was also ranked as the seventh leading cause of mortality in the U.S. You know, Susan, that's actually underreported because those numbers are based on death certificate data, which really tends to underreport type 2 diabetes. Someone who has had diabetes for 30 years and dies of a heart attack may die because they have hypertension, hyperlipidemia. But it may not be put down that diabetes was the cause on the death certificate. That's a good point. The increase in diabetes over the past few decades has gone off like crazy. One of the biggest things that we have to think about in terms of diabetes is it's not just about sugar. We have to go beyond that. 
with obesity being a heavy burden right now. Prior to COVID, the prevalence of obesity among adults in the United States was 42%, and that number is only going to get bigger. These data are only concerning obesity and don't include those that had overweight. However, the number of adults with diabetes who are overweight is also growing. And as you said, the patient usually dies of the complications of diabetes, such as heart disease or microvascular disease. Most of the time, it's heart disease, and of course, obesity increases the risk for cardiovascular disease in people with type 2 diabetes. And John, you know, I I would add that in in terms of the prevalence of diabetes, it's estimated that 15% of the U.S. adult population is projected to have diabetes by 2030. Yeah, let's pause to consider that 15%, though. There's a lot of undiagnosed diabetes that may not be captured by this 15% estimate. And the undiagnosed diabetes, as well as pre-diabetes, both contribute to the burden on the health system. Another important thing to point out is that the prevalence is not the same across our adult population. You need to consider race, ethnicity, health disparity, and health inequity. Prevalence in the elderly is also increasing. The incidents in African-American and Hispanic adult populations are growing. These populations are growing, but the incidence of diabetes within them are growing as well. From a population health point of view, there's a tiering of the population, from those who are healthy all the way up to those who have multiple complex illnesses. Prediabetes is at the bottom, where people may think they're healthy, all the way up to having a single condition, like diabetes, to rising risk where there is an interplay between diabetes and hypertension, hyperlipidemia, heart failure, and chronic renal insufficiency, the burden increases as you go up those tiers. Diabetes is seen throughout that triangle. The greatest numbers are at the base of the triangle, and as you move up, the per-person costs go up. So this is a call to action on screening, reaching out to patients. A lot of patients are seeing their doctors but are not being screened. And there's a whole cadre of people who don't yet even have doctors. And there are patients in high-risk groups who are not being seen. A system of care is necessary to address the demographics, incidence, and prevalence of diabetes. So let's talk a little more about the cost. Having diabetes results in a significant cost burden for our patients. In 2017, the average cost of medical expenditures for a patient without diabetes is around $7,000 per year. The figure is more than doubled for a patient with diabetes. Yeah, and we have to think about the person with diabetes. You know, the people with diabetes have to deal with diabetes 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They often have a reduced quality of life. And really, you know, when we come to think of it, there is no such thing as a person with just diabetes. There are so many complications and related conditions that go along with diabetes that it's important for the person with diabetes to focus on all of this. You know, so they're busy trying to keep everything under control and managing it. You know, when you consider costs, it's not only the cost of medication, but food costs as well. You know, healthier food products, you know, which is important for people with diabetes, tend to cost more money. And when you look into complications, you know, you have a heart attack or a stroke and then the medical bills, there's amputations, eye disease, nerve disease. You know, all of this is just very costly. And then there's also the cost of missing work, which affects not only that person, but also the family. So really, it's a domino effect. So if the person with diabetes is very worried because not only are they 
you know, missing work, but they have family members who are having to take care of them who are also then missing work, you know? So again, it's just really overwhelming for these people. So it's that lost productivity and it's a feeling of not being worthwhile and not contributing. You know, they're losing their independence. All of these factors together create a burden, not only on the patient's pocketbook, but on their mindset as well. You know, Susan, you make some excellent points. You look at some of the data on absenteeism in the workplace that you alluded to. There's also presenteeism, which means you're present at work, but you're not nearly as productive. Duran, can you talk to us about costs in the U.S. healthcare system as a whole? Well, John, in 2017, the U.S. healthcare expenditure was about $327 billion for diabetes and its related comorbidities and complications. So the question for all of us uh, we're facing these staggering numbers is, is how much of this is actually preventable. That's where we need a theme of early treatment, aggressive screening, finding people before they become toward the top of the triangle, where it's more costly to treat. We want to be more aggressive with the base. We need to frame it around preventability and understanding that it's not everyone with diabetes has the same amount of costs. We need to try to address each segment of the population with the appropriate approaches. And we've clearly established that diabetes is costly and the prevalence of diabetes is increasing. The increasing diabetes rates are strongly correlated with the obesity trend. We've seen that on CDC maps. Those of us who live in the South know that we're in the diabetes belt, where there is also a very high prevalence of obesity. So, Susan, would you talk to us about what we know about U.S. obesity? You know, the U.S., John, we have one of the highest obesity rates worldwide. In 2018, 42% of adults in the U.S. were obese, and these numbers are expected to increase due to COVID, which will have an upward effect on the diabetes rates even more. The CDC reported that about 89% of adults with diabetes were overweight or had obesity. So when setting up a treatment plan for type 2 diabetes, it's critical that we consider therapies that don't contribute to the obesity problem. Agreed. One thing that's not as well recognized as the relationship with obesity is that diabetes worsens with age. Advanced age is another risk factor for diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes. Doran, you mentioned the elderly population earlier. Can you tell us more about this specific group? Oh, for sure, John. The aging population needs to be carved out from the rest of the population, given the demographics of what's happening in our society. We're getting older. In the past 10 to 20 years, the number of people over 65 and over 85 has increased dramatically. And diabetes is quite prevalent in people who are 65 years of age and older. And so much so that the general practitioner of today needs to be arming themselves with the knowledge and skills to be geriatricians. They need to know what's prevalent in that age group and how to appropriately manage it, whether it's dementia, falls, urinary incontinence, depression, as well as diabetes. Diabetes is not traditionally thought of as a geriatric syndrome, but when one out of every three people over age 65 will have diabetes by 2030, knowing that fact is key, along with knowing how to set appropriate goals, what an appropriate A1C target is, how to keep people safe when you're managing diabetes, choosing appropriate agents that are the least likely to cause harm, and most likely to get people to the agreed to and negotiated goal from a glycemic endpoint standpoint. All of that is what's really necessary for a physician, physician assistant, or a nurse practitioner who asks, what do I need to arm myself 
to do good primary care. That's a great point, Doran. What you said just applies really to all patients with diabetes and not just the older population. I think what you're getting at is the clinical inertia, treating to failure as opposed to getting wildly aggressive at the start of T2D management and just driving it down and keeping it down instead of just limping along to an A1C of 7 over five years. This is such an issue that the ADA has launched the three-year Overcoming Therapeutic Inertia Initiative. Susan, what are your thoughts on clinical or therapeutic inertia? You know, despite having evidence-based support that shows that achieving glycemic targets sooner translates to better outcomes and reduced risk of micro as well as macrovascular complications and maintaining A1C levels for a longer period of times, and despite the advancements in therapeutic options and diabetes-related technologies, and despite the publication of clinical practice guidelines and consensus statements, we're no better at reaching glycemic targets. According to the NHANES data, we still have the same proportion of patients with an A1C greater than 9% as we did 15 years ago. And that figure is somewhere around 15%, despite therapies available. After more than a decade of progress from 1999 to 2010, where A1C in adult patients with diabetes actually decreased, the use of glucose-lowering medications had plateaued since 2010. Only 50% of patients are meeting the A1C goal of less than 7%, which isn't all that different from where we were about 20 years ago. Some of that is on the patients, but some of that's on us. Let's touch on cardiovascular risk, which we know is associated with A1C control. How far have we come since Ice Ice Baby was the number one rap song? Susan, what do we know about macrovascular risk in our patients with diabetes? You know, uh, you're, you're making me feel old here. Uh, <laughs> as we said before, most people with diabetes actually die of cardiovascular problems. You know, cardiovascular disease still remains the greatest risk in people with diabetes in terms of hospitalizations and death. You know, people with diabetes have a higher risk of having an acute MI or a stroke. And as mentioned earlier, there is no such thing as a person with just diabetes. Additional risk factors common in people with type 2 diabetes includes hypertension, dyslipidemia, obesity, kidney disease, and smoking. And that's why we have to look at the person as a whole and not just the sugar. Uh, agreed, because it's all tied together, isn't it? Epidemiological evidence supports an estimated 11 to 16% increase in cardiovascular events for every 1% increase in A1C. The impact of diabetes can easily be illustrated with the ASCVD risk estimator from the American College of Cardiology. The average annual medical care cost for someone with CVD and type 2 diabetes would be more than twice those of someone with type 2 diabetes and no cardiovascular disease. However, even for the patient with type 2 diabetes and no CVD, their increased risk for a cardiovascular event from having type 2 diabetes would make their medical costs, which might include cath lab and hospitalization charges, be even higher than those without diabetes. Yes, checking that yes button on the ASCVD risk estimator can really make the 10-year ASCVD risk shoot up. Okay, now that we've talked about the enormity of the burden, what can we do to lighten the load? Our current approach to diabetes management doesn't seem to be working, as evidenced by our previous discussions. How can we improve 
on what we're doing. Well, as clinicians, we need to have a treatment plan that sets the patient up for success, not failure. We want to make sure that the therapies that are being chosen are not creating more weight gain in a person that we're saying we would like you to lose weight. Medications are also only a part of the treatment plan. You know, there are non-medication recommendations, lifestyle changes, diet, exercise. We need to be initiating early treatment, aggressive screening, finding people before they become toward the top of the triangle, where it's more complex and more costly. We want to be more aggressive with the base. The burden increases as you go up. I think we need more utilization of diabetes prevention programs, understanding resources in your community to be able to refer to much more aggressive early self-management for those who are just diagnosed, medical nutrition therapy, really trying to make sure that patients are right out of the gate, treated not only aggressively from the standpoint of pharmacotherapy, but also having them understand they have this disease for a lifetime. So if you have prediabetes, there are things you can do, such as annual monitoring and considering eating patterns recommended for individuals with prediabetes. If you have diabetes, you need aggressive therapy, both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic. Both are critical, and we don't do either one very well. We're very slow to intensify treatment. We keep people not well controlled for many months and years. And on the other side, we need to help them be the best advocate for their own health. From my perspective, we need earlier screening, earlier, more aggressive self-management approaches for patients to help them understand what they need to do and much more aggressive provider adherence to the guidelines, which, when followed, lead to appropriate selection of medications and appropriate intensification of therapy based on individualized patient needs. And we need to do all of that within the context of patient-centered decision-making so that the goals of care really are negotiated with the patient. So not only aggressive screening and early intervention, but persistent unrelenting efforts at keeping A1C under control. You can intervene early all you want, but diabetes changes over time. It progresses. You've got to be relentless and you've got to get the patients invested. Treat the whole patient, not just the sugar. Well, Duran and Susan, thank you so much for participating in this program today. This concludes this episode of Act Early to Lighten the Heavy Burden of T2D. Please join us for the next episode of T2D, Don't Sugarcoat It. I'm John Anderson, and thank you for listening.